It's beautiful. Thank you, Ryan and praise team. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to be looking at, at Daniel chapter 3. And um, before we look at this chapter, I want to remind you of a, a classic quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, of what is God up to? And um, he has this quote that kind of puts things in perspective. He said, that is why we must not be surprised if we're in for a rough time. Anybody in for a rough time this morning? When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the, in the same sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptations, he's disappointed. These trials, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very, very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we've not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is, is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to make, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. He calls it later, in another place, the intolerable compliment. He loves us so much he can't leave us the way we are. And yet it's painful what, uh, you know, the, we want to be delivered, you know, we want God to meet us, please, outside the fiery furnace, and yet God's pleased to show up and meet us in the fiery furnace. And so as we look at this chapter, we'll consider some of those things, and first I want to just kind of give you an outline of where we're going, and uh, so here's where we're going with this chapter, if, if you like outlines. Uh, the first seven verses is the dedication of this worship service, and they're all about out of this idol. Verses 8 to 12, there's going to be this accusation that's brought against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then we're going to see the intimidation of Nebuchadnezzar to force them to bow down, and they're going to make their declaration in verses 16 to 18. And when they make their declaration, that's going to bring not reward but retribution of punishment. And then the disorientation is the befuddledness of King Nebuchadnezzar at what happens and the, the story ends with a benediction or another decree. The story begins and ends with a decree by King Nebuchadnezzar. He first starts out, everybody's got to worship this idol and by the end, peoples, nations, and languages are to worship Daniel's God. So that's where we're going. So the first seven verses is the dedication. So let me read that and then we'll, we'll kind of go through this chapter as we go. So King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. So 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And by the way, many wonder, where's Daniel in this chapter? Does he somehow, you know, escape, 
You know, where is Daniel? The silence of Daniel. Well, we're given a clue. The very last phrase of chapter two says, Daniel remained at the king's court. So we don't really know, but my sanctified imagination thinks that somebody had to stay home. And Daniel was all the more happy to volunteer to stay home. <laughs> I'll stay care and take care of matters here. You guys go out and do your thing. I'll take care of things here. Or possibly Nebuchadnezzar wanted to relieve him because of what we'll get into in a minute. If you, the, this big image is kind of contrary to the dream that Daniel interpreted in chapter 2. And so maybe he didn't want Daniel around. We don't know. And in verse 2, Daniel sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Notice how many times there's just lots and lots of repetition, but the word set up just keeps getting repeated, and it's meant to show you kind of the futility and the vanity of idols, that this is something that he has made himself and set up which is nothing. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And, herald, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so we see a lot of repetition that's going on in this chapter. It's great literature, but there's, there's several of these words I want to draw attention to. First is the word image. It keeps telling you about this image that's been set up, and that occurs 11 times in this chapter. It keeps referring to this image. Well, I mean, six times in the first seven verses, it keeps referring to this image. Well, the image, which was 90 feet tall, 90 feet wide, um, it's meant to draw us back to actually chapter two of Daniel. And the context was Daniel had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar his dream of an image. And that image is a little different than the image we see in Daniel chapter three. So if you look back for a second at Daniel chapter two, verse 31, Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The image, mighty of an exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So what was ominous in this interpretation that, that Daniel, you know, tells him about the dream, but he, then he gives the interpretation. And there's two very, very pregnant words in verse 39 of Daniel chapter 2. And it's the, it's the two words, after you. He tells him this interpretation. You're, you, O king, you're that head of gold, aren't you great? But after you, another kingdom. 
That's the last thing a king wants to hear is the words after you, okay? And so he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar what the Lord is gonna do. The problem is Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like what the Lord's going to do. He likes being that head of gold in the image and he wants to make sure there's no kingdom coming after me and I'm gonna remake my own image. I'm gonna reinterpret history and prophecy. And you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna make an image 90 feet tall and 90 feet wide and it's gonna be gold from, he from head to toe and I'll make sure there's no uh, clay and iron in the toes. It's gonna be gold all the way through because nobody's coming after me because I'm King Nebuchadnezzar and everybody's gonna bow down to this idol and I'm gonna bring in every possible person, all the pomp, every possible instrument, and I am gonna show you this is gonna be the dedication of dedications that I have set up. And it's described in vivid detail by Daniel so that you will kind of be humored as you're reading this. Every possible person is there. And so, I mean, every area of government is represented. Warren Wearsby uh, presents it like this. He says, the princes or the satraps, they were the chief administrative officials in the provinces. While the governors were probably their assistants or perhaps military commanders, the captains ruled over the smaller districts in the provinces and judges were their advisors. Treasurers served as treasurers do today and counselors were experts in the law. Sheriffs were the local judges and magistrates and rulers were the miscellaneous officials in the province. So every layer of authority was represented and all were expected to be present. And if that wasn't enough, every possible instrument is there for this worship service. A full symphony, horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. So everyone's there, every instrument, and everybody's to fall down and worship and bow down. You wanna talk about peer pressure and king pressure. I mean, it keeps saying the word king over and over and over and over again. Why, does it, why is Daniel doing that? So you would feel the sheer magnitude of the weight of authority that this is the king is doing this, okay? And so, um, you know, the idea is that, you know, you can worship all the other gods you want to, but you are gonna worship my God. You can still have your God in, in Israel, you can have Yahweh, but, but you're gonna add to that my God. You see, that's, what the, that's what's going on in this pluralistic, uh, hedonistic, uh, polytheistic culture, and it's the same is true today in our culture. And sometimes, you know, as, as, as societies work out, sometimes the state fears the people, but oftentimes people fear the state, and that's what's happening here. I mean, Dale Ralph Davis, who I love reading his commentaries because they're basically his sermons, and he's quite the historian. He tell, tells a story about Joseph Stalin in his heydays in the 1930s in the Soviet Union. And his name was once mentioned in, in a government meeting, a provincial meeting. And it triggered an instant standing ovation and a dilemma. No one dared to be the first person to sit down. Finally, an elderly man who was unable to stand any longer took his seat. They noted his name and arrested him the next day. You see, in the days of Hitler, whenever he passed by the crowds, all were conformed to pay, you know, Heil Hitler and pay homage. And if they didn't do that, there were big consequences. And if, you, if some of you have read the story of um, 
oh man, I'm blanking on his name. Bonhoeffer. There comes a point in Bonhoeffer's life where he goes by and, and Bonhoeffer is not supporting him at all, but he raises his hand and, and, and he basically tells his buddy, you know, basically he had already determined in his heart he's plotting to get rid of him, but I've got to pay homage or my life's going to be killed before I'll ever get a chance to carry out what I want to carry out. That's, that's pressure big time from the state. Well, it's happening here. And today in our culture, the fault line of peer pressure, where all the instruments and the pageantry and the pomp are celebrating, it all seems to be revolving around sexual identity, sexual orientation, and the absolute intolerance of anyone who is not tolerant of the LGBT lifestyle. That's where the fault line just seems to be right now. The president of George Mason University, very recently, on his personal Facebook page, this is the president of a college, big college. I think the biggest college in, in, in Virginia, surprisingly, is actually GMU. And he says on his Facebook page that anyone who stands for, for traditional marriage is absolute trash. Okay? This receives some backlash but the school is backing their president because their line was, well, it's his personal Facebook page and not representative of the school. So we can separate the personal from the professional. I don't think that works both ways, though, do you? I mean, imagine if the president had said that anyone who doesn't believe in traditional marriage is trash, and he put that on his personal Facebook page. Do you think the school would still back him and say, well, that's his personal Facebook page, but it, it's not his professional? No way. He'd be fired in a New York minute. But because he's on the other side, it's okay. My point is to get you to see that your Bible and your Christian faith, you're in a culture and you're a square peg and you are trying to be squeezed into this round hole of our culture. To be squeezed is to compromise biblical values, things that you know to be true, in order to receive either A, the praises of men, or two, more likely, to avoid the persecution of men. And so for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this was the moment. Because everybody's faces is down and everybody's butts are in the air except for three people. And it was pretty obvious who they were. And so these three men are not getting with the program. So that's going to lead to the accusation, verses 8 through 12. You recall, you see, that Daniel and his, his three friends are promoted at Daniel's request at the end of chapter 2. And so in chapter 3 now, we get a little snippet of how these three teenage Jews are doing with their promotion in this new Chaldean environment. Let's take a look, verse 8 to 12. Therefore, at, the, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. So this is a racial issue. Chaldeans and these, here these Jews have been promoted. They're not happy about it. So they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree, and, and every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of, of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, Pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Boy, oh boy. I mean, they're really putting the screws to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you've promoted these guys and they have no regard for you. And we can see that they're jealous. 
And they're, they're, they don't like that these stinking Jews are rising up the ladder so fast. So let's knock them down a few pegs. Let's knock them all the way down. And so when the news reaches the king that these three won't join in the office worship party, this is going to lead to some serious intimidation, verses 13 to 15. Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought So they brought these men before the king, front and center. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, horn, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a, and this word is meant to be, Repeated, it's like 11 times you see this phrase furnace, and nine of the times it's a burning, fiery furnace. I mean, it just keeps repeating throughout the chapter, so you will get with the program. This is a serious, burning, fiery furnace. And then he poses a question And who's the God? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's going to answer his own question in verse 29, but which you love, because now we have the contest. And every chapter of Daniel, the first six chapters, is a contest. We got a big contest going on. Who's going to deliver you out of my hands? I mean, who's greater than me? I'm King Nebuchadnezzar. I got King, I got gold going from 90 feet down. Isn't he great? Who's going to deliver you out of my hands? I got this big fiery furnace. You're going in it. Who can stop me? Whenever God gets put to the test like that, it usually doesn't go well in the Bible for the, for the party that's doing that, just as a little note to self. Probably something you shouldn't do either. So it leads to this declaration in verses um, 17. Uh, well, just first about the, the intimidation, is that the intimidation factor is there are times where God's people, in obedience to God, have to disobey in order from the king. And so, um, you know, th- for, for, for these guys here, this isn't you're gonna lose a friend, you're gonna lose your promotion, you're gonna lose your job, you're gonna lose your life. I mean, everything's at stake. But it leads to this declaration, this courageous declaration in verse 17 and 18, and this is just the key verses, I think, in the chapter 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's such a balance in these two verses. Look at those two verses, 17. Can you leave that slide up there in verse 17 and 18? These two verses are just such beautiful verses, such a balance. I mean, a typical Pentecostal would only pray verse 17, and a typical Presbyterian would only say verse 18. But note, they say both, okay? They believe their God does miracles, and he will deliver us out of your hand. He is able. I've been reading a fun book right now. It's called Saving My Assassin. It was a fun read. Veronica recommended it or came across it. And I was like, I got to read this story. Of This is a lady that is now writing. She's in the States. She's still alive. She was um, 
in the communist, she was in Romania when the communist regime was, was in full swing and they persecuted Christians uh, terribly and many were killed and, and at one point, I mean, she, they're gonna take her life and because she is a lawyer and she keeps representing the Christians and representing the churches and she keeps winning battles. And there's one part where they've got her on house arrest and she's stuck. She can't go out of her house for over a month and she just kind of eats everything in her shelves and at one point her children are able to escape and, and she's just convinced that they go out and come back because an angel had blinded the guard from seeing, seeing them. But, but there's this one humorous part where they finally release her and they show up to court and they had, the people had been praying hard in this worship service. Well, they had a plant there, a guy from the uh, Communist Party, the, I'm not even sure the name of it, Securiate or something it's called. And they keep praying that Maranatha's gonna come. And so when they get to court, the, the other the people are real scared. They said, man, she's got somebody else representing them. This guy named Maranatha's gonna come and, and, and bring the case. And they were really scared because Maranatha's gonna come. <laughs> he is gonna come. Maranatha means, you know, Lord, come quickly. And this guy hadn't gotten with the program and didn't understand the book of Revelation, but he was really scared and got everybody else to be afraid that, that Maranatha's gonna come. Well, as the story works out for this lady, Virginia, in the story, as she keeps winning cases, uh, Kuchescu, I think is his name, the very top leader. I mean, he's running the country. He's on the phone, and he wants her killed. And, they, and he sends a guy to kill her. And he comes into her office with a gun. He said he was going to strangle her, but he wanted to scare her by showing her the gun first and was going to shoot her. There's nobody around. It's the end of the day. She can't scream for help. It's her and this guy. And she's looking at this gun and she decides, I'm gonna witness to him. So she looks at this guy and she's this little woman, not even 100 pounds. And she says, do you ever wonder why you're here? Why does, what is the meaning of life? And this guy, you know, begins to, and then she just proceeds to start telling him that we're sinners, we've been separated from God and that we need a savior. And God has sent his son to save us from our sin. Have you ever given your life to Jesus Christ? And she reaches out and puts her hand on his hand and says, let me pray for you, and leads him in a sinner's prayer. And this guy, he gets up, he's just floored by this woman, and he starts bawling. And as he leaves, he's crying so much, he's such a mess, he prayed the prayer, he gave his life to Christ. He gets in a car accident, crashes his car, so Shuzetsku thinks, you know, the leader of the country, I'm not pronouncing his name right, but he thinks, well, the reason he didn't carry it out is because he wrecked his car. Well, the reason he wrecked his car is because he got saved. So years later, she comes back here to the States, and this guy comes to visit her. And she, he's looking at a picture, and he says, oh, he, she, he hasn't identified himself yet. He says, when I remembered you, you only had two kids. And she realized when he said that, oh my word, it's this guy. And she's scared. She's thinking, well, now he's really come to finish off the job. And he begins to tell her, no, I became a Christian. I became a pastor and I have a church now and I have a Christian school and all these hundreds of people go to the church and are at the, at the school. And the story ends with this guy writing the epilogue saying, 
they're probably going to get me because they're still going back and looking at the war crimes, and he killed a lot of people. This guy was no joke. And he said, they're probably going to come and get me. But basically, praise Jesus, and maybe God will use Virginia again to spare my life. But, you know, that's how the story ends. God works in mysterious ways. He can do that. And I think we need to be praying more, verse 17, as Presbyterians. Ask God to surprise us with his power. For God to show up. We believe nothing's too difficult for God. His arm's not too short. God does miracles. We believe that. And so we should pray like that and ask God to do that. However, in verse 18, we have to say that, you know, there are times where they, that these guys say, but, but if not, if God doesn't show up and he doesn't deliver us in this way, we're not bowing down to your idol. And so I think for us as, as believers, I think a lot of times people walk away from the faith right here. You see, because it's like I did this for God, I served him, I trusted him, and this is the thanks I get. He didn't show up at my burning, fiery furnace, and, and now I've been thrown in it. And look what happened. He took what's most precious from me. And people want to give up on the Christian faith because it was not really the Christian faith. It was Jesus plus a good life. Contrast Job and Job's wife when horrible affliction came. Job 2 says he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. His health has been taken from him. His wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So true faith trusts in God alone rather than God plus. It's not God plus the good life, God plus the good wife, God plus great children, God plus great health, God plus no, main, no pain, God plus no suffering. At some point, for all of us, the pluses become a minus. And if we have true faith and we trust God, then we have to say even minus these things. Though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. As Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego put it, but if not, meaning, but if our life isn't spared, be it known to you. We're not bowing down. We're serving them to the end. Look at your bulletin at the beginning of the meditation quote. There's a quote by Dale Ralph Davis I think is really helpful. And he says this, these men give us a full balanced picture of faith. Faith knows the power of God. He's able, verse 17. It guards the freedom of God, but if not, 18a, and holds the truth of God. We will not serve your gods. There are some in our day, however, who would not be entirely happy with this faith. In their view, faith involves being far more cocksure about God's faith. Their kind of faith is allergic to any uncertainty about details. If they could re rewrite the chapter, they would have their friends declare, Nebuchadnezzar, we're gonna call down God's deliverance. We, O king, are gonna bind the fire. But bi biblical faith, Bible faith doesn't do that. Faith does not predict God's ways. It simply holds to God's word. Faith obeys God's truth. It does not manipulate God's hand. Faith is not required to plot God's course, but only to obey God's command. Faith's finest hour may be when, when, when it can oppose Nebuchadnezzar and the three words, the burning fiery furnace with three of its own, but if not. You see, if God is to be served only when he follows your agenda, God isn't going to be served very long. 
we have been promised. And first Peter says, don't even be surprised. Don't even be surprised as though something strange were happening to you when suffering comes. Don't, don't be surprised. That's the norm. That's the, that's the new normal for Christian life. And it's described in 1 Peter 1 as a fiery trial, a reference back to this, that purifies your faith, though tested by fire. And so when they make their declaration of faith, it's met by Nebuchadnezzar's retribution, verses 19 to 23. Nebuchadnezzar's filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the, fur the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they fell, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fire, burning, fiery furnace. You would think that should be the end of the story. End, period, end of chapter. Is that how the chapter ends? I mean, you would think that's how it should end. This fire is so hot that it kills the men who threw them in. But this, wait, the story's not over. Verse 24 to 27, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hairs of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Amazing. And if you remember when Bruce did the call to worship this morning, we read from Isaiah 43, and there's the verses that we read. Twice God promises, I'll be with you, I'll be with you. And this is prophesied, uh, you know, sometime in Isaiah's ministry, 740 BC and, and down, and now this is 100 years uh, later, and now this promise is, when you walk to the fire, you shall not be burned. Who'd have thought, who'd have thunk? I mean, who'd have thunk it? That that would be a literal promise. I know that's not correct English, but you know, who would have thought? It's impossible. No, it's right there. God said this is what he's gonna do. When you walk to the fire, you'll not be burned. And so if he fulfilled that literally and the promise to be with you, I think I should take that literally too, that that's Jesus in the fire, literally with them in the fire. You see, God shows up. So this disorientation just totally messes with um, Nebuchadnezzar's brain here. And he's astonished, he's amazed, he's befuddled. And he's gonna move in his worldview. He's not quite yet converted. The next chapter we'll get to next week, we'll get to, get to see that because Nebuchadnezzar actually pens the next chapter of this story. But once again, Dale, Dale Ralph Davis is really helpful when he says, he says, Christ did not keep them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of the furnace, but found them in it. He does not always shield you from all distresses and dangers, 
but it's in the loneliness, in the betrayal, in the loss that the fourth man comes and walks with you. He has the knack of both exposing you to, yet keeping you through waters and rivers and fire and operating rooms and funeral parlors and an empty house. The fourth man can always find his people. He meets us often where we don't want to meet him, but that's where he wants to meet, meet us. In the big picture, what's the worst thing that can possibly happen to you? You see, all furnaces in this life are nothing compared to the furnace that Jesus went into, and he went in alone. Jonathan Edwards has a classic sermon. It's called Christ Agony. I don't have the time to, to reference it to you, and to, um, but I would encourage you that want to read a little bit more and you want some f- soul food, what he contemplates is that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's, you know, he's exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death, and he begins to pray more earnestly, and drops of sweat of blood come off of his brow, and he's, and he's pleading, and what is he looking at? And Edward says, the sorrow and distress which his soul then suffered arose from that lively and full and immediate view which he had then given him of, the, of, the, of that cup of wrath by which God the Father did, as it were, set the cup down before him for him to take it and drink it. And he says about this cup, he says the thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time, without doubt, the same with that which his mouth was so full of, it was the dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. And Jesus had to make a choice. And he says, the choice is, here's the cup where you're going to drink unless you, give it, give, unless you will give up your undertaking for sinners. Edward says, and even leave them to perish as they deserve. Will you take this cup and drink it for them or not? This is the furnace in which you're to be cast if they're to be saved. Either they must perish or you must endure this for them. Then you see how terrible the heat of this furnace is. You see what pain and anguish you must endure unless you have given up the cause of sinners. What will you do? Is your love such that you will go on? Will you cast yourself into this dreadful furnace of wrath? And Christ's soul was overwhelmed with the thought. His feeble human nature shrunk at this dismal sight. It put him in the dreadful agony, which you have heard described, but his love to sinners held out. Christ would not undergo these sufferings needlessly if if sinners could be saved without. If there was not an absolute necessity of his suffering, then in order their salvation, he desired that the cup might pass from him. But if sinners on whom he'd set his love could not, agreeable to the will of God, be saved without his drinking it, he chose that the will of God should be done. He chose to go on and endure the suffering, awful as it appeared to him. And so these questions are put before, you know, Edwards describes these questions being put to Jesus and Jesus saying, why should I, why should I plunge myself into this dreadful, amazing torment? For worthless, wretched worms that cannot be profitable to God or to me, that deserve to be hated to me and not to be loved. Why should I, who've been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go to cast myself in such a furnace for them that can never be, 
never requite me for it. Why should I yield myself to be crushed by the weight of divine wrath? Why should I be the richer for having saved a number of miserable haters of God? What's the answer? He loved us and gave himself for us. And if he loved us and went to the ultimate, the ultimate furnace of God's wrath, that's the one you will never ever face. All other furnaces are penultimate. They are secondary. They are not to be feared as this wrath was to be feared. And Jesus already took that for his people. So the confidence that you have is that our God has suffered. He knows what we should have experienced and has taken it for us. And if he's taken that for us and shown his love, how will he not now freely give us all things? He spared not his own son. And so these other things that seem so horrible and so scary and so traumatic, drama, they're not the drama that Jesus, Jesus has already done the big drama for us, secured our eternal life. And so we can rest in him. He won the contest over Satan, sin, and death. Our God is good. Let's pray. Lord, we do say our God is greater. There's none like you. You're the only one who can save from sin. And you did it by your own self. Your own arm brought redemption. And so now we lift up our voices to praise you and our souls to thank you and our lives to live for you. Come what may, give us courage like these men. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Our God is, our God is greater.